Hi, everyone. I'm Kayla. And I'm Max. And this is Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right? A podcast where we pull water from the fountain of youth and we try to pour it onto our favorite musicals that flopped and give them the life they deserve. Some fishes should just die, though, Winnie. (laughs) Not this one. So for those of you who haven't gotten it yet... Or read the title of the episode. This week, we are going to be doing uh, Tuck Everlasting. So, Kayla, give us a little summary about Tuck Everlasting. You know I will, courtesy of Concord Theatricals. 11-year-old Winnie Foster yearns for a life of adventure beyond her white picket fence. But not until she becomes unexpectedly entwined with the Tuck family does she get more than she could have imagined. When Winnie learns of the magic behind the Tuck's unending youth, she must fight to protect their secret from those who would do anything for a chance at eternal life. As her adventure unfolds, Winnie faces an extraordinary choice. Return to her life or continue with the Tucks on their infinite journey. <laughs> Tuck Everlasting is a fantasy novel by Natalie Babbitt. Published in 1975, it received the 1976 Christopher Award for Best Book for Young People. And in 2012, it was rated number 16 among the top 100 chapter books of all time. There have been two film adaptations made of this famed children's novel, one in 1981 and the more well-known Disney adaptation in 2002. Fun fact, the Disney film starred Sissy Spacek as Mae Tuck, which I believe makes her our first Daygear double hitter since she also played Carrie in the 1976 film. Daygear! <laughs> it sounds like a Game of Thrones character and I'm obsessed with it. It really does. Director-choreographer Casey Nicola from famed shows such as The Drowsy Chaperone, Book of Mormon, Aladdin, and Something Rotten was inspired by Babbitt's book and brought on Claudia Shear and Tim Fetterlate and composer-lyricist team Chris Miller and Nathan Tyson. Planned to open in 2013 in Boston, but unfortunately due to scheduling issues, it was pushed back. It finally opened, however, in 2015 in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater. Shout out! (laughs) Have you done any work at the Alliance? I had one audition at the Alliance, and it went poorly, (laughs) but I was grateful for the opportunity. No no internships (laughs) or anything? I did work in an education conference there once. It was fun. Cool. The show in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater starred Andrew Keenan-Bolger as Jesse Tuck and the literally iconic child actress, Sarah Charles Lewis. We're going to gush over her. So much in this show. (laughs) Our Georgia legend. The show then transferred to Broadway with some relatively significant changes, including several songs added and uh, several scenes changed pretty dramatically. It began its previews March 31st of 2016. It then opened on April 26th. And unfortunately, it closed very shortly after on May 29th after 28 previews and 39 regular performances. I have a question for you because I couldn't find anything about this. Did they not run a normal eight show a week schedule because of Sarah? That's a great question. Sarah is legally not allowed to perform in all eight shows a week. So did they choose to do less than that? My assumption is they had an alternate. Can you imagine being the alternate to like the actual lead? Because like Matilda, they're very clear about the fact that it's three kids who play this role. They put the three kids on all the like TV appearances, but it was only ever Sarah. For Matilda? I don't know. I think it's just the one. Probably. Yeah, I'm assuming there was an alternate. I'm not 100% sure. A lot of our shows, we see these short runs and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. This one stumped me. I'm not going to lie. 
I had to look, there was luckily a New York Times article about the flop show of that specific season that was very helpful in providing context. And this is what the New York Times said, quote, without big stars, it had low advanced sales. The story is a bit of a fairy tale, often hard to execute. Adults perceived it as a show for children and family shows without the Disney imprimatur are hard to sell. Tuck was sweet and lovely, but those are not the adjectives a musical needed this season to be heard above the din. And then I went further and looked into what else was showing that season. And this was the year Hamilton won the Tony. So like, for Hamilton, <laughs> it's, it's a hard year to be a new musical because they're like, Hamilton yeah, is you're reinventing musical down. theater. And this song's just like, can't go any faster. We are lovely and nice. So yes, this was the year Hamilton oh, But that the wasn't Tony. the only show this season with kids. No, School of Rock was also on this season, which didn't flop, didn't run for a very long time, but it had a lot of kids. So if you were going to go see a show with kids, you might go see that. Or was Matilda still running? I genuinely am not sure. I did not look that one up. I'm going to Google it real quick. Oh, it was out way before that. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Matilda was also running. That's so rough. Oh yeah. They were really fighting against big stuff here. <laughs> yeah. And Disney had two shows mounted at the time, Aladdin and The Lion King. So you've got School of Rock, two mouse shows, Matilda, and then little Winnie Foster trying to make her little voice, little big voice, heard above all that. It's it's tough. That makes more sense. I think if this show had come out in a season with less kids, it may have done better. Yeah, possibly. So let's talk about some of the reviews. The Hollywood Reporter said that the libretto was more serviceable than inspired. Its level of sophistication is illustrated best by the evening's biggest laugh, in which the grandmother shouts at the villain, you're an evil banana. Let it be known that is a hilarious line, and in context, it is stellar. But yes, the grandma was the funniest part. It is pretty darn good in the moment. Additionally, they said that the country and folk inspired music by composer Chris Miller and lyricist Nathan Tyson was uh, equally unmemorable. We disagree. They say the director kept things really moving on pace, although he massively overused the carnival style dancing sequences, which actually served more to distract from the story than to uh, help. That we agree. However, this is something we agree on heavily the real find in this show is Sarah Charles Lewis. We're so obsessed with her. It's not funny. Like She was a mere 11 years old at the time that they did this show. And she was so amazing that the reviewer said her precocious talent suggests that she may secretly be immortal herself. She's Sarah, so Sarah, if you're listening this to show. this, check your DMs. We love you. We will send you merch. <laughs> we don't even have merch. We'll make merch to send to you. <laughs> And then the final thing that The Hollywood Reporter said that the show's undeniable high point is the finale, a beautifully staged ballet sequenced to reflect the aftermath of Winnie's decision to not drink the magical water. It charmingly illustrates the stages of a long life marked by love and loss, and it achieves a level of subtle artistry that makes everything preceding it seem pedestrian by comparison. It really is, in my opinion, the best ballet in a musical. But and we'll talk about it more. It is beautifully executed. As this reviewer said, it really does make the rest of the show kind of fall a little flat. You're like, why are these girls just twirling? And then you come and do this? <laughs> it's just twirling and then it's this? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll talk about one more review from The Guardian. 
So they said the musical structure begins well enough with Live Like This, an I wish song for all of the major characters. But too many of the numbers that come after also fall into the I wish I want category. The reiteration of this desire eventually falls because probably if you listen to the show, you're a nerd. So you probably know that an I wish or an I want song comes in order to spur action. You can't just keep wishing and wanting. That yearning has to be resolved in some way or else you'll just feel unsatisfied. Okay. And then one more quote from The Guardian. The mushy and unnecessary sentiments inspire a concluding ballet choreographed by the show's director, Casey Nicola, which is a triumph. Yes, its symbolism is obvious. Yes, it tugs at the heartstrings with a deathless grip, but it also beautifully illustrates the show's belief in the quiet splendor of human life, however ephemeral. Again, it is a beautiful ballet, but I agree. A lot of the show is very on the nose, very kind of pandering to its audience, Mm -hmm. which kids don't need. Kids are smart. So we'll talk about it in our reimagining. Let's head right in. Maestro. Welcome back. So our guest this week is an esteemed transatlantic talent. He has been featured nationally across the United States, from Arizona to New York City, and will soon be doing his directorial debut in Switzerland, Max Protzen. Yeah, he's the other host of the show. (laughs) Oh my Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited. I've I've never I've never done this before. This was clearly a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so just as Kayla had her episode, I I get to have my episode because we are deeply interested in our own opinions. So true, Queen. <laughs> We're gonna do Tuck Everlasting for me, mostly because I was really interested in the book when I was a child, and when I found out it was going to be a musical, because I actually found out before it ended up on Broadway, I was like, ooh, yes, I'm very intrigued. I really always loved the music for this show, and I never ended up seeing the show, of course, because it closed pretty rapidly, and I didn't know that there were bootlegs, so I was just like, the music is all I got, and I like it, so yes. Kayla, what did you think of Tuck Everlasting? I only knew Good Girl Winnie Foster because I was looking for good songs for children to sing when I was teaching children voice lessons. And that's that was my whole Tuck Everlasting universe. Never read the book, never saw the movie until this week. Let's start at the like truly the widest landscape shot that we can get. You can't see any actors or anything. The biggest problem with Tuck Everlasting and its adaptations is that every single adapter forgets that this is a children's book. It is for children. (laughs) Snaps. I watched the movie with kids and they hated it. They didn't hate it. They would have loved the book. And I kept being like, this was different in the book. When like Winnie and Jesse started making out, I was like, kids don't like to watch this. This is not what kids like. But that's like one of the most interesting things about the whole Jesse and Winnie situation yes. in the book is Jesse only like wants her to drink the water because he just wants a friend to have around. Like he it's not even like a romantic interest. He's just like, I need a friend. Yeah. One, she's 11. And two, he doesn't know her well enough to like know if he'd ever be interested in her romantically. He just wants a companion, someone who can enjoy life with him in that forever 17 And like she has a crush on him in the way that 11 year olds have crushes on their big brother's friends. She thinks he's so cool. And he's nice to her. Yes. Shout out to all my brother's friends. I had crushes on all of you when I was 11. (laughs) 
it's fine. They don't listen. <laughs> That's my first major change to Tuck Everlasting. I'm making this a TYA show. For those of you who don't know what TYA is, I found out You're it's actually cool. just an American thing. Um, it stands for Theater for Young Audiences. It's kind of like LORT, the League of Regional Theaters. It's a group of theaters that are, have all decided we prioritize children's theater and they help each other create children's theater. And children's theater doesn't necessarily mean shows that are only featuring children. Like I for a long time thought if it was children's theater, all of the roles would be played by children. But I think in a TYA reimagining of Tuck Everlasting, the only people that would be played by children are Jesse are and Winnie. Winnie. <laughs> well, Jesse's yeah. under 18. Honestly, you'd probably need to cast Jesse as 18 just to save money. Um, so true. <laughs> as a TYA theater. Yes. So the only legit child would be Winnie unless you keep the, the one small boy, which I don't. But we'll get there. <laughs> So this is this is now the real like the real thing for you and I, Kayla, to decide right now. Are we imagining a world in which a TYA show could have success on Broadway or are we just reimagining this to be a TYA show? I think I'm imagining this to be the best possible TYA show. I'm not saying it couldn't be on Broadway, but I don't think any of our adaptations have truly been for Broadway. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We've just imagined for success. Yeah, we're just, we're trying to make the material shine. And I think this would be probably not on Broadway because I, I think it would be shorter, but I think it would still have an intermission because kids have little bladders and little attention spans. I did a lot of research on um, one of the um, foremost TYA theaters in the country, which is the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. A major portion of the shows that they have created and now sell the rights to are all 90 minute one act shows. One act, because I saw like a 45 minute TYA Winnie the Pooh at the Alliance. It was so adorable. <laughs> it was really awesome. Did they did they make it two act? No, but it was 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, so this is the big the big problem for me and the big problem for you. Neither one of us are TYA artists. So um, true. And we have no <laughs> guests. So we're really just setting ourselves up for failure. So we're going to do the the absolute best we can to guess and assume at what children will enjoy and like. Yes, neither of us are TYA, but we were both children once, so we're going to do our best. If you are a TYA person and want to give us your thoughts, please do. You can email us. You can talk to us on Instagram, whatever. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe we'll read a letter on the show. Who knows? We'd love to interview you about our thoughts regarding this and maybe put that out for a bonus episode. That'd be really cool. Engage with us. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into concepts and stuff for the show. So I'm going to do something really unusual for me because as you know, Kayla, my thing is move everything to the here and now. I'm actually thinking this show actually works better as a turn of the 19th century setting. Is it just because we don't do circuses anymore? <laughs> I live in Switzerland. Circuses are very popular here. <laughs> Gross. Okay. Like there's literally a national circus like a company that is endorsed by the federal government like with elephants tours and stuff? no 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 Good. no okay. they as so long as they no used to have elephants routine, it'd be, it'd be they used to have elephants in the 60s like they were considered the highest level of animal circuses being the animal lovers that they were when they started to realize that it wasn't necessarily kind they took a bunch of profits and made a zoo to Aww 
give all these domesticated these domesticated circus animals a place to continue to live and interact with humans without needing to be in the rough and tumble circus life of moving around all the time. I've never been touched by the existence of a zoo. <laughs> so yeah, anywho, circuses are very popular in Europe. Like America, the only circuses that you really know of are the Asian circuses that come through town for like a week. <laughs> I was wondering why I always got tickets at the dry cleaner. Damn. <laughs> Society is so race-based. Because I, I do have a distinct childhood memory of being offered tickets to the circus at the dry cleaner. My parents would never take me, though. Oh. I never went to the circus. Speaking of childhood memories, I actually got to see a Ringling show. They did it at Expo New Mexico in the indoor auditorium, which I thought was strange. They didn't do it in a big top, but it was a Ringling show. I do remember. It's possible that I went, but most of my childhood is like, whoop, who knows? <laughs> I do remember the tickets. <laughs> Anywho, I'm going to place the show at the turn of the 19th century, mostly because I have a traveling circus. Because currently, the framing device for why the man in yellow is there is because of a fair. However, I think you can do a lot more dramatically with a circus than with a fair. Do you have anything you want to throw in? No, just that I love that. And I hope that means that the man in the yellow suit is now not doing that weird, creepy age thing because I hated that. Hated that bad. We'll get to the man in the yellow suit, the character section. <laughs> yeah, the character section is going to be a lot. So I can't take credit for this next part because it was actually Kayla first. A TYA show almost never has a large ensemble and this show's ensemble needs to be severely cut. I'm thinking you'll have the leading characters. So probably one, two, three, four, five, six, and then five other people who play, um, for example, the constable and Hugo and Winnie's mother, father, and grandmothers. Now, this is something where I'm where I have to bounce board off of you, Kayla. I'm trying to decide if the whole thing should be framed where the, the circus is telling the story of Tuck Everlasting or whether it should be the circus is coming into town and this is the way that the story goes. I don't think this story would benefit from a storyteller because I think there's so many internal storytellers that you don't really need one big framing device. Mm -hmm. So... I had a really intelligent thought about cutting the ensemble down. Um, oh, no. That I'm now going to express. Thought. Okay. This is a really personal and private story when you think about it. Like, it's an astonishingly small amount of characters. And having this massive ensemble, I feel really betrays the social pariahs that are both the Fosters and the Tucks. Really good intelligent thought that's pulled from my bullet point under Live Like This. It's fine. Is it? <laughs> I, I created that myself. I, I did you. not read yours. We have one mind, honey. Like we, If we're going to have we an do. intelligent thought, we're only going to have one. We're not going to have two distinct ones. For the audience who hasn't read Tuck Everlasting, the Fosters are social pariahs in the book. They never hang out with any of the townspeople. They are considered like the weird folk. They're an who isolation. live on the edge of town and own too much land. So having a massive ensemble really betrays that. I agree. There was some plot stuff added that I would take away. I think the book kept things beautifully simple. There was kind of one conflict and it was resolved. And I didn't really feel like adding additional conflict helped. Most of the second act revolves around the Tucks finding out about Jessie's proposal to Winnie. When she's 17, she'll drink the water and join him. I think it just adds unnecessary bad energy. The show already has so much inherent sadness just in its concept that like mm -hmm. becoming an extra downer is not needed, especially in a children's show. And I also think it means a lot more 
when Winnie makes the decision herself to not drink the water without everyone hounding her about it, she experiences the joys of growing up and decides that she wants to keep experiencing that and not because a bunch of immortals were like, do not be immortal. It fucking sucks. So I don't know. I thought that took some of the power away from Winnie's agency. Mm -hmm. And then I also thought that the whole Hugo storyline was super unnecessary. Very contrived very contrived like i don't care don't tell me to care about a whole nother person hugo was not in the book and i'm cutting him from the musical fun fact when we cut the hugo storyline we could almost just with that one cut get the show down to the 90 minutes we need (laughs) yes and then i would also make another character change this would also kind of affect the book kind of significantly because in the libretto they mention Winnie's dead dad like 70 times I felt like they were like Winnie is isolated and sad and her parents never let her leave the house there has to be a reason why mourning No, they don't need to have a reason other than that they're kind of awkward and weird and stuck up. I think that another thing that made Winnie really relatable in the book is that she hadn't suffered any sort of extreme tragedy. She was just a little girl who was lonely and that was enough. Mm -hmm. So I would hashtag bring back Winnie's dad. He can be alive. (laughs) I, I didn't understand that death. And then on that note, they made a weird adjustment talking more about Miles's son than his daughter and I don't know if it was just because they wanted to put Winnie in that cute vest was that the whole thing for that but Mm. it made way more sense when they focused on his daughter because Winnie's a little girl so Mm. justice for Anna bring back Anna so my character contribution is regarding the man in yellow so I've decided to change his role from just being like a member of the fair to being the ringleader of this circus that comes through town I think it's more interesting if you give him more power because that's something we see a lot is these people with lots of power who continuously want more and fight for more. I think the way that I want to frame the show is I want to start the show with the man in yellow bringing his circus back to his his hometown, which it's made clear in the book and it's made clear in the musical. He actually grew up in Tree Gap. I think it'll work nicer if he's bringing his circus back to his hometown. Additionally, why does the man in yellow have to be so goddamn creepy? They did that in the movie too. And I was like, no, because what makes him such a good villain is that you don't see it coming because you're a child and children trust adults, especially adults who are nice and not creepy. Yep. You want it to feel like a betrayal. Since this is a TYA show, I want this to be like the kids like him. They're comfortable with him and then they realize he's the villain. We can get a little stranger danger lesson in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not that TYA like needs to do heavy lifting with every show to like teach kids not to talk to strangers or whatever, but it's good for children to see that like first impressions can be deceiving in really surprising and and bad ways. So I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like going for a swim, mayhaps a deep dive. I am ready to deep dive. We'll start with the prologue. I'm actually going to change this entirely from being the tux to being the circus coming in and setting up and the man in yellow during a lunch break or something begins to tell this fairy tale that his mother told him as he was growing up. And it's a fairy tale about this very town and those very woods It's just a better framing device. Okay, I see that. It definitely plays in a little bit to like having him be the greater storyteller, but I don't mind a little bit of that as long as it's not like aggressive. It's only going to be a dash. He's the ringleader. He's allowed. It is a prologue. Prologues can fundamentally be different in style. Honestly, I'd probably cut it and just work that story more into live like this. Okay. 
I don't know. What I noticed about Live Like This is that structurally, it's incredibly similar to the opening of Into the Woods. It's introducing us to these different characters and their relationships to each other and their stories and also showing that they're very distinct from each other, at least for now, and that they don't interact initially. Like, you see the baker and the baker's wife and you see Jack and his mom, but you're not like, they're best friend neighbors. It's clear that they're separate for now. And so I think that that structure works really well. And I think that the information from the prologue could be integrated into that number. And I would also obviously, like we talked about before, cut the ensemble from this number. I think that it betrays the honest truth of the story, which is that these are very isolated groups. And I think it also muddies up the exposition, which is especially important in a TYA show because you don't need to spoon feed children, but you do need them to understand what's going on and you don't want it to get lost in really heavy pit vocals. I also just think it'll be really exciting when the world opens up to Winnie and to Jesse and then the ensembles introduced. Yeah. I am also going to be changing the man in yellow's lyrics because right now we just start creepy. He's talking about like all he wants is this special magic. I think it's better if it's just like the Tux talking about returning home and the curiosity and excitement of being back in his Shared hometown. themes? Oh my God. What a concept. <laughs> Okay, on to the only song that I knew from this show, Good Girl, Winnie Foster. The song is, it's really fun. I, I love the lyric, raise, raise a little something more than heaven. It's so cute. It's like, I'm not going to say hell, but I'm going to think it. I think it's a great song. I want to go back to her talking to the toad outside. Like, I don't think having it in her skirt really added anything except for like a very cute little moment. But there's a lot of cute little moments. And I just, I love the dynamic between Winnie and the toad in the book where she was essentially using the toad to dare herself to do stuff she was too afraid to do by being like this toad is going to judge me if I said I was going to do this thing and then I don't so I guess I gotta do it I would have her telling it all to the toad would not start it inside the house and then maybe you can see like granny through the window or something and on the topic of granny there's a section at the end where granny and her mom are singing at her and then there's also two other random ladies on stage and you're like who who the fuck are you and so just make it three-part harmony with the granny and the mom and the dad who is now alive. You're welcome. I gave you your father, Winnie. Additionally, the whole dad thing, it's not played well throughout the show. Like no. once in a while, they use it to make us feel bad for Winnie. Yes. Like, oh, your dad's dead. Now Jesse will take his hat off of his head and hold it to himself. Or she'll be like, it's okay. My dad's dead. So I'll tell you that I'll always love my dad. Like your son will always love you. And it's like, no, it's just dumb. Your son doesn't love you because he's 97 and he is dead. Plus, that's the other weird, weird thing about the dead dad angle. She's over it real fast. Or that's what's implied is that she's like, I'm out of my blacks. You two are hanging on to this for way too long. It's bad. I didn't lose a parent when I was a child, but I have a really hard time believing that a child loses their parent and then is the first one to move on. Yeah. So dad's alive. Join the parade. This would be my first appearance of the ensemble. So it would have been like picture both the tucks and the fosters all kind of wearing muted colors. So it would have been very muted colors, man in the yellow suit, and then just all of these bright like kind of pastels kind of complimenting the man in the yellow suits ring leader, like all these pinks and blues. And I think that that would be really exciting if you hadn't already seen them all singing and dancing and being around for some reason. True. And of course, 
Remember, we are de-creepifying the man in the yellow suit. He sees Winnie from across the fence and just goes, hey, do you want to come to the circus? You seem like a child who'd be interested in that. Instead of doing this, like, I'm going to do magic around your head and everything just enough to make you think that I'm creepy. She gets the literal one introduction and then she's scared of him for the rest of the musical. It's dumb. Fuck, we didn't talk about set design. (laughs) Set design. Oh. I just hated it. Yeah. I just did not like it. <laughs> you hated the Broadway set design? I did. It was very like, hey, it's a children's book, so we're going to make things look like cardboard, which is one just like brainstorms are really good because the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not going to be the best thing. It helps to keep going. They stopped after the first thing. They were like, a storybook, make it out of cardboard and uh, felt and they were done. I would much prefer to see something whimsical, something that looks like a child's imagination, bright colors, lots of light. Mm-hmm. So in that way, would do you think you'd have lots of like physical constructs or do you think there'd be more creating things? Because there's like whole scenes in the musical where inside houses and stuff. Do you think it would be more creating those out of parts or would it just be like wagons that are moved on? That's a good question. I think that I'm not a set designer. So the thing that I would want from this as a director is I don't really care if they're building things or if they're on wagons. What I care about is the feeling. When you remember things of being a child, like colors are a little bit brighter. Everything's a little bit bigger because you're smaller. I just want everything to feel a little bit more like the sky's a little bit too blue. You know, I don't I don't have particular opinions on exactly the fundamentals and the mechanics. I just want everything to feel magical. One of the things I really loved about the Broadway set design, which they weren't able to do in Atlanta because I, I assume they didn't have enough money, was the absolute massive tree. Oh, I hated that tree. I hated the tree. Well, the physical design of the tree, not great, but I loved how big it was. And I love that it actually reaches into the audience. There's half of it that reaches almost three quarters of the way over the stage. And then the other half actually reaches into the auditorium. And I I thought that was very cool because I like... I like breaking that stupid proscenium down. That being said, there's no reason for this show to be in a proscenium. There's nothing innately. Yep. In fact, I would dare to say you could uh, in the round this show, even if you wanted, because it's it's more folk taily like you're experiencing it than it is anything else. For the set design of this show, no matter what, I would want to have a, a tree. It definitely would not be a swooping pages tree i also i thought a lot about water in this show i think yeah. it'd be really interesting to have like a, a stream the stream was so disappointing just like the weird crepe paper moment if we're doing it thrust i'd have the tree like back left and then i'd have the stream flowing from the spring across the stage down into one of the voms i think that'd be really stunning and beautiful and now that i'm coming up with it on the spot i've decided i am now going to do sketches and models for this this was what (laughs) i wanted (laughs) okay so top of the world yes we have dramatically different opinions on this i'll just oh i'm excited (laughs) okay well i'll start libretto moment they didn't have the scene where she's like how old are you and he says 104 and she says no how old are you really and he says 17 and she says oh that's old they cut the how old are you 104 no really part why did they cut it there was no reason it was in the atlanta production (laughs) it's in the atlanta production it's in the book it's in the movie like just leave good just leave well enough alone what if they just forgot to say it that one night that we watched the bootleg i feel like that's more likely than them cutting it from the script somehow and then I understand Jesse needs an intro song, but I don't like it. I don't think it's a good song. I would cut it and I would move a different song. What song? Partner in Crime? 
No, I didn't move any song. I just cut it. You didn't. You just said you wanted a new Jesse song. And no, I'm just having it be. I'm not. I'm not having him have a, a song until Partner in Crime. Oh, okay. Yep. So I would cut Top of the World. I would not replace it with anything. I love Top of the World. Really? It's actually the first song that I ever heard from this show. That might be the reason why I am so connected to it. But I think it's really fun. It inspires the creativity and the and the willingness for exploration that sort of pushes Winnie to the sort of, if I live forever, then I can do all these incredible things. Because it, the whole show is essentially this tug of war between Jesse's side and what he believes immortality to be and everybody else in the Tuck family. I feel like if you lose this song, it loses a bit of Jesse's pull on that rope of getting Winnie to want to drink from the spring and have all of time to do everything. Okay, I see your point. I'm not sure I'm convinced yet because I feel like when we get to partner in crime he could do that effectively with one more verse okay Mm -hmm. okay i did i did want to make a note here this has nothing to do with any real productions but in the atlanta production may is coming along with a cart and there's a there's a carpet on it and it's really funny because when they kidnap winnie they wrap her they roll her up in a carpet which is a lot better than just throwing a coat over her but also didn't that take a while no, it did not. It was like three turns and she was in the carpet and over Miles' shoulder. So anybody in a carpet is going to be funny to me. Especially and to I kids. Especially think to children. And it's going to be even better when they like place her down on the floor and give her a little kick and she just rolls out of the carpet. The kids will no. love that. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> now we can move on to Hugo's first case. Cut it. He Gone. has no cases. All He's the Hugo dead. Stuff, he has never cut. been born. I will say in the Atlanta production, they had Hugo there, but he didn't have songs and he wasn't a major character. I'm okay with that because I like the idea of at least having somebody we know when we come back around to Winnie getting married. Do you want to say anything? No. Story of the Tux. I love it so much, by the way. I love this song. I think it'd be so funny if after the clusterfuck that is this song, rather than having Miles come over and be like, hello, I'm the big brother and I tell everything sensibly, they try to have Winnie tell the story back to them. So that last verse that's Miles, it would be Winnie, but they're like helping her because things are confusing and she's like dropping points, Mm. but they're helping her pick them up. I think that that would be really cute and funny. Yeah, I don't mind that. This song is so good. It's good when you listen to it, but it is real good when when you're watching a bootleg and they're just all in total disarray and then they all sink for their three-part harmony and they're looking out at the audience it hits different my most beautiful day this is something this is something because i i like the song i think it's a nice pretty song that being said i'm a man and i don't know how realistic this is in fact one time i asked my mom because i played the song in the car and i asked my mom like do you have this situation? She's like, no, that's the stupidest thing in the world. I hope my most beautiful day is in the future. Like, I really hope I'm not constantly looking back on my best day. So I don't know if that's just her opinion or if this is generally like a a really dumb song. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. One, I don't like the framing scene for this this song. I wrote a new one. Maybe I'll put it on Patreon. I don't need to do a reading with myself right now. Uh, Just just give the basic breakdown of the the framing. Okay. So essentially, I didn't even really understand the framing. I don't even remember what it was. I just remember not liking it. They're looking for a new dress for Winnie to wear. And then Winnie finds her the, the dress from the day that, that May oh, got yeah. proposed to. And that's what started this. Dumb. It's a little pushed. It's a reach. I would prefer it if she puts her to bed, 
We've got a little time sequence. We hear a little clicky clock, ticky talk kind of moment. And May comes back up and says, having trouble falling asleep. And she says something about not wanting the day to be over and how she doesn't want it to fade from her memory. And she's like, it will never fade from your memory. I've been alive for a bajillion years and I still remember so many beautiful things. And there's so many beautiful things to come. And that's, and then you go into the song. And I agree with Max's mom that it seems a little silly to spend your whole life looking back. And I think that one of the verses could be something along those lines of like, I remember this day so fondly, but like if you spend your whole life looking back, you'll never find your next most beautiful day. So I would then propose something. I think that what we need to do is actually flip-flop the attic and most beautiful day. I think it's better if we have Winnie's gone to bed and she has by the way, we've changed the attic song because right now it, it doesn't follow the like emotions are high nonsense. She's just like, oh, I'm in a scary attic, but I'm super excited about the world, la la la. So what I would like to do with the attic is I want to uh, change it to reflect more of her really conflicted feelings in the book, because in the book, she has this whole moment where she had this beautiful dinner with them and she had this great time and she really enjoyed their family dynamic. But then she goes to bed and realizes, wait a minute, I was actually kidnapped today. This is not a good situation that I'm in. So I think it would be better if we actually move the attic to before most beautiful day. I think that's a great idea. It'd be cool if it was a lullaby. Yes. We love a lullaby on Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right? Partner in Crime. I, I, I'm ready for the defense. <laughs> I have cut Top of the World. So this is really the first time we're getting to know Jessie. And I think it would be so fun and so exciting. She's out with a older boy who seems so cool and knows so much and is so fun and he's been all these places i don't think we need to climb a tree first i feel like it pales in comparison to him talking about the seven wonders of the world and all that just give him one more verse and he'll be good because winnie carries so much weight in this show like if she has to sing one less verse i think it's fine honestly i fear for any child in any community theater production of this who has to play Winnie because Sarah Lewis was such a genius in this role. Any poor, unfortunate 10 to 15 year old child will pale in comparison to the brilliance that she brought to this role. Yeah, I think Partner in Crime's a great song. It's really fun watching them run around the fair in the circus. It'd be really interesting if they kind of participated in some of the acts in the show. I think that'd be really fun and cool. Yes. And then this is just, you know me and like little kids. I saw the little kid randomly in this song and was like, there better be a purpose for this aggressively small child being here. And there was, and yet I still cut him. Okay, 17. 17. So we talked about the man in the yellow suit already and how he is now the ring master ringleader, ring human of the circus, and therefore he doesn't do the weird age guessy thing. So we cut that out and I mean you could do a really basic fix and just replace it with him seeing her Winnie and Jesse and being like, "Hey, it looks like your mother let you go to the fair after all." And she's like, "Yeah." And then she runs away. A big complaint I have, because I'm kind of feeling on on keeping the age guessing thing, just because it gives a reason for him to notice Jesse in any meaningful way. What if he is a volunteer for like a circus act and then, or he like gets pulled yep. up on stage and he gets hurt or should get hurt and then he don't. They got so many things right with the Atlanta production that they for some reason changed. In the Atlanta 
Atlanta production, Winnie wants to do the age guessing thing because it's just a fun carnival game. And Jesse is the one who's scared of the age guessing game. Yes, but they, I don't understand why Winnie wouldn't be afraid of that because she already knows about the tux. I don't think she thinks about it because, first of all, he doesn't look 104. He looks 17. So she doesn't think 11. that it would even be a problem. Yeah, and she's 11 years old. And the second problem that that creates with this is Winnie has zero reason to fear or be wary of the man in the yellow suit. There's this whole thing where Jesse's like, oh, I can totally beat this this age-guessing guy. And then Winnie's like, no, he came to my house. He's really creepy. She saw him once. There's no reason to fear him. It's really weird. Like, and- he probably wants to drink your blood. <laughs> If I'm keeping the age guessing thing, I'm putting it back to the Atlanta production where Winnie partakes and then Jesse's kind of forced into uh, the age guessing as well. Okay, fair enough. 17. I have a little bit of a problem with 17. The only reason that it can kind of end act two is because the man in yellow overhears them talking about the spring. There's nothing innately about 17 that makes it an end of act two song. I disagree because of how the show is currently set up, which is that this whole offer sets up most of the drama for act two because everyone's just talking about it. I think that that should not be the case, which would make it not work in my production, but I understand why it's the end in this production. Additionally, since we're doing a a one act, or possibly for you a two act for me a one act there's no need to have a song that is enticing you to come back for the second act so i can keep this song without any real problems (laughs) also like i just want to drop all of the like weird body changing jokes of like you can't just drink it now because then i can't fuck you oh i really don't like that when you're literally talking to a 12 year old child it's like oh yeah there's gonna be a difference you gotta have titties like stop and it undermines the thing of jesse just really wants a friend like in the book he even says we could get married but it's not about getting married it's it's like we can if we want kind of thing we can just take on the world together and explore yeah if i was directing this production i would have jesse played very asexually i don't want any tinge of sexuality to him because Mm. it can compromise that relationship so quickly and make it from something really wonderful and pure to something icky and i don't want it to be icky i want to be nice we shouldn't really have any of that in a tya show anyway exactly (laughs) i mean there's a lot of romance in tya shows but like not between children and romance is different than sexuality hundred somethings (laughs) oh beginning of act two everything's golden you know what's not golden this goddamn song it's so bad it doesn't do anything except be like i'ma be rich and i'm gonna be rich and i'm yellow suited and i'll be yellow gold having it's terrible it's gross yeah it also just like feels really wrong for me to if we're gonna go away for an intermission to not come back and be with winnie's family we've been away from them for so long especially if you take that intermission it's just like damn her poor parents and so I would want to start act two with a song that starts where everything's golden essentially ended, which is the man in the yellow suit knocking at the foster store and being like, hello, how you doing? It was so, oh, I was so glad to see Winnie at the fair. And then they're like, Winnie was at the fair? What? And then he's like, oh yeah, I know where she's been. I know where she's at. She's with someone and I know where they're at. And, and a song. And also that all takes place in a scene, which in the musical structure, it shouldn't because it's important. And so it should be in a song. It's mm-hmm. very emotional and very important important and then i want like a poor unfortunate souls moment where he's like okay sign away your woods now and i'll take you to your child and that's the melody i've written it i'm a composer yeah 
honestly, it's brilliant, and it does the <laughs> most important thing that the song should do, which is advance the plot. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a visionary, really. Okay. 17 Reprise is so small and tiny and unnoticeable that I actually missed it entirely when I was watching the Broadway uh, <laughs> when I was watching the Broadway bootleg. I was like, I remembered it from the Atlanta show and then I was watching it and I was like, wait, was that in here at all? And I actually went back to look for it. It was. It's just so forgettable. She's simply vibing. So, time which is Miles's song after um, basically there's this massive explosion about the Tux learning that Jesse was at the fair and they have to leave. Obviously, all that should stay. What shouldn't stay is them realizing that Jesse wants Winnie to drink from the spring. Miles has this song that is really nice, but it's super heady and cannot fit in a TYA show. Like, I don't think any of these 12-year-olds have experienced the loss of a child. <laughs> it's just not relatable content. Yeah, it's I'm, a lovely song. I'm cutting song. it. And I'm also okay with Miles being the only one who doesn't have his own song in the show. I think that's fine. In the current layout of the show, there's nothing that actually makes him a tuck interesting enough for us to have him have a song see i would give him a little more meat throughout the libretto to set him up to sing the wheel not angus which i'm very offended about i'm sorry babe (laughs) i'm ready i just think that he is kind of the person that's experienced the most loss because of the immortality that i feel like it would just be very very powerful coming from him because i am doing it from a place where Miles has actually processed his trauma. What a concept. (laughs) Unlike where he's just like angsty and an alcoholic in the movie, I think, and a gambling addict. It's just like a lot. And so I would give him the wheel and Angus wouldn't have his own song. Sorry, Angus. So that's that's my problem with this is Miles, there's something fundamentally different between the way that Miles and Angus have experienced the world and why I think it's more important for Angus to sing the wheel first of all it's literally all of his lines from the book like almost word for word but second of all so miles got to experience a great deal of of life like he was 22 probably had at least three four more years before he found the woman that he married maybe one or two years with her then two 15 years of having his child he got to have a lot more life meanwhile angus and may have not gotten to have this kind of life. They became empty nesters, started to sort of live this life of, well, what do we do now that we don't have kids around? And they have been living this existential, like, who are we now that we don't have our children kind of thing for much, much longer than Miles has. And that's why Angus wants so much more to die than Miles does, which is unfortunately what the wheels is. I know, but you say much, much longer, but it's not that much longer. It's only maybe 10 or 15 years longer, which in the scheme of it's 25 years. years. Is... Okay, well, I can't do math. But in the scheme of eternity, that's not a long time. Well, yeah, but they've only they've only been going for 85 years. Yeah, but I still think that 60 years versus 85 years is still pretty powerful. So we'll just agree to disagree on that one. Yeah. Actually, no matter who sings the wheel, the wheel is still the next song because I cut time reprise. Everything's golden reprise. You can't trust a man. And so that would be the next song anyway, after 17 reprise. Wow. Literally right the next song. I did not do that. Wait, what did you keep? Time reprise I am cutting. I'm cutting everything's golden, but I'm actually replacing it with the scene where the constable meets up with the man in yellow and then they end up going to the tuck house together. Together. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep. And then he rides ahead. However, I would cut 
you can't trust a man because there's no there's no longer a reason for that. I would just make the granny say it in a cute little voice. Not saying the song, but just say, <laughs> you can't trust a man in a yellow suit because she's cute. Granny's a great I know character. she's just there to be cute and funny, but like that's all she has to do. She's perfect. I love her. Okay. The Wheel is hands down my favorite song from this show. It is gold. Also, the fact that they were just like, the things that this author wrote in this book are so beautiful and profound will just make them the lyrics incredibly the intelligent. Also. Don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I'm reinventing the wheel. Not reinventing, I'm just rearranging it. If you go on YouTube, Broadway Unlocked has a pre- Atlanta pre-workshop video of Jeremy Jordan singing one of the very first versions of The Wheel. And it's just a little, just a tiny bit better in the beginning. And then the middle section, they added the part where Winnie sings back to him. And that definitely needs to stay in my opinion. So I would add back the beginning Jeremy Jordan part and then bring in the, uh, the refrain, I don't know what the musical term for that is, but yes. Also, in the book, the reason why Angus starts talking about the... He, he just like brings the wheel thing out of the blue. I'm thinking I kind of want to merge the Winnie on the boat with Miles scene and the Winnie on the boat with Angus scene. Oh, I love that. And just make it the fishing moment where they catch a like, fish and fish she back. doesn't want to kill... Exactly. And then he has to sort of talk to her about the circle of life and and why animals die and all that stuff and then he goes but i don't i don't get that i don't get to have that anymore i'm stuck here and i don't get to be a part of it okay yeah that's lovely i think that that's a really good setup and that would again work with me taking away the thing where they're all convincing her to not take jesse's offer yeah i completely agree i don't i i think that is a little excessive we're adding too much drama and this song does the work without it having to be like exactly. i'm telling you this because that's... you're going to to be immortal. That's one of the things the book does so well is it gives her all the reasons not to do it without needing to be like, you shouldn't do it because this boy wants you to do it kind of nonsense. <laughs> it gives her the tools but doesn't put them in her hand. Yes. Story of the man in the yellow suit. This is the villain song. Like, who needed the golden whatever? I didn't. This is the one. However, right before or after, they're like, Jesse is missing. He left without saying bye to Ma. And when he's like, I know where he is and he's down at the stream it's just like another weird unnecessary drama added forced again <laughs> yeah it can just be like we trust you Winnie and we're gonna walk you back home to your parents and she's like dope and so they're just walking her home and that's when they encounter the man in the yellow suit and that's enough yep notes regarding the production that we that we saw first of all I love the justification for why the gun is there it's that Miles brought it in order to defend himself because it really just appeared in the Atlanta production and it and kind of just appears in the book it makes far more sense however severely don't know why they didn't find it, the budget to hire an actual stage combat designer <laughs> I know there's Bonk. literally one moment of stage combat but it is horrifically bad it was so bad <laughs> I'm like, you can pay the guy to come in for one day and teach them to do a Just mildly teach them to good how stage to hit him across moment. the face instead of like, don't hit the head, drop. So silly. Aggressively bad. Okay, now Everlasting. it's when I start throwing out the truly hot takes. I love this song. I think it's so beautiful. I don't want it. Again, I think it takes away from the magic if we see Winnie being like, should I do this thing 
Or should I not do this thing? I don't want to see that. I want to repurpose parts of the song and the melody to have it be the goodbye between Winnie and the Tux. Because like, what a moment. Why isn't it music? I would cry Mm -hmm. so hard if they were like singing to each other about how their time together was finite, but the memories are everlasting, whatever. I think that'd be so beautiful. Whatever. So this is the true hot take. One of the reasons that I don't have Winnie's everlasting after the Tux leave is that when the Tux leave, I don't ever want to see Winnie again. She is gone. Bye. Bye, Winnie. We only see her grave. We don't see her grow up. We don't see nothing. So I'll first talk about Everlasting and then we'll talk about that. At first, when I first read this, I was like, you can't really cut Everlasting, but you've fully convinced me and I have no defense. There's no real reason. Like it gives her a nice song. But she has so many nice songs, Queen. Like they were just like, this 12 year old sings so good. We're going to let her do it a lot. Yeah. I I have no excuse for how or why it should stay because it's far better if we just see that she's made the choice rather than needing it to be told to us. The story of Winnie Foster. So you don't want Winnie anymore, which obviously means you're cutting the story of Winnie Foster, the ballet. I loved it. But yeah, it's got to go. Bye. This ballet is brilliant. This is the ballet that all musical ballets should be measured against. It does everything it's supposed to do, and it does it masterfully. It's so pretty. The first time, I cried. (laughs) The second Second time, time? I cried. (laughs) Talking about it right now, you cried. (laughs) Honestly, do yourself a favor. I'm not going to tell you how, but I'm sure you're intelligent enough to go hunt down a bootleg of this production and just watch the ballet section because it's so incredibly well done. Gorge, gorge, gorge. That being said, if we're doing a TYA show, it's long. It's five and a half minutes. It's too long for children to sit through as a ballet. If we were singing, we might be able to get away with it, but currently it's just too long. However, it is deeply important in my opinion. It's incredibly important because it gives us it gives us everything we need to see why she made the choice she made. I feel we need that especially for the kids. The kids don't get any of that otherwise. But I want the kids to ask questions. Those are not the questions the kids are going to ask. As a little girl, my question 100% would have been like, why did she drink the water? Go with Jesse. But do you think they'd get anywhere from that? <laughs> or would they just say that and then go have their Pop-Tart? <laughs> they might stare there for that day. It's so beautiful. It is such a beautiful ballet. I love it. I think it's so effective. I just think that there's something so incredible about the Tux and Winnie part. And then there's just the passage of time. And we don't see any of them. We just see the world. Like, I don't know how to do this and not look tacky. I'm not a set person. Again, I'm a director and I ask for things that cannot be done. But I would love to just like watch the front of her house and like just have some orchestral music and just have like it age like ivy grew up the walls lighting shift i would love to see ivy just slowly creep up the walls and just the passage of time without any people involved i think would be so beautiful and then the wheel reprise are you ready for the wheel reprise you did not get to see this in the broadway bootleg because the camera angle was not good enough but there's this really beautiful moment in the ballet for all of you who are going to go directly from this podcast to watching it there's this beautiful moment where winnie and hugo are courting and then they end up falling in love and getting married but while they're courting jesse is sitting there waiting by the tree for her the whole time it's stunning and heartbreaking and that hurt one of my crying moments (laughs) okay the wheel reprise so i have a question about this because in the book 
all the wheel reprise is, is just Angus and May coming into town and they find her grave and they read it and it's a beautiful, sad moment. And then they say, well, we never need to come back here again because they spent all those years returning to check in on her. And now that she's gone, it's okay. They can move on with their lives. And don't forget in the book, they're like, Jesse will be so sad. And then they're like, well, Jesse knew a long time ago. I'm literally crying, like I'm vaguely recounting the book. I think it's so beautiful when it's just May and Angus. And they talk about like, oh, that's going to hurt Jesse. It just like really gets me. Is this my first cry on this podcast? <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so I, I'm kind of thinking that we just need to have it be Angus and May. I don't think we need the whole Tuck family there. Even though it's fun to have Jesse pick this toad up off of the off of the grave and bring it with him because it's it it's beautiful and it's not something the kids would get, but it's it's the gift that Winnie inadvertently gave to him is a companion to go with him everywhere. Yeah, I did love that. But like, there's something so perfect about just May and Angus. Yeah. Ooh. So Max, way to destroy me with this children's <laughs> show. I was like, oh, cute, like a Peter Pan thing. And then I cried all the time. It's fantastic. It's it's beautiful that it even when you're an adult, you can read the book or listen to the book and still enjoy it. Like it's not, it's not obsessively a children's book. It doesn't pander you or the children. It's fantastic. I hope that we've created a musical that does the same thing. It's it not provides pandering. without pandering. It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's a really lovely source material. And I think that Max creating a TYA show, you really brought it back home. So thank I you for being our for guest. You. Yes. <laughs> Um, what if I hadn't had said that this needs to be a TYA show, do you think you would have thought about bringing it into a TYA show or do you think you would have tried to work with this adulting? I wish that I could be like, no, I never would have thought of it, but we have one mind and that's exactly where my mind went immediately. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but like, I'm trying to think, because like you said, TYA, before I'd even looked at it, I think that I would have arrived at TYA. It just, it seems like such a natural fit, especially after watching the movie and being like, oh, no, Rory. So aggressively not for adults. <laughs> yeah. Except the children do want to finish the movie. We didn't actually finish it yesterday. And they're like, can we finish it? <laughs> I'm recording. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to our second kind of solo episode. We hope you enjoy these. They're kind of a little bit different than our normal stuff. But if you want to continue to hear stuff from us, you can follow us on Instagram to find out about the shows that we are going to be covering in the next week early so that you can do a little preparation if you want. You can find us at Get It Right Pod. You can email us with idea suggestions, guest suggestions, your thoughts. Uh, if you are a TYA expert and want to tell us off because we did it wrong, all of that is welcome at evergetitrightpod at gmail.com. Additionally, we have a Patreon where we have a bunch of really cool content. Um, I do set designs and Kayla does some really cool dramaturgy and also some really tasty cocktails. And I'll do more if you guys give us money. Currently, our only Patreon shout out to Lisa Friedman, who is my mom. Yay! Yay, mom! And if you don't have any money, we relate. You know what costs nothing? Leaving us a review on your favorite podcast app, following, subscribing, downloading the episodes, it all really helps. We are going to start at the end of every episode shouting out 
one or two people that have left us a five-star review and just giving them a thanks. So this week, we want to thank Jessica Weiner and Evan Powers. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. And if you're unable to leave a review in your podcast app, just share us with a friend. If you're a theater nerd, you probably have at least one more theater nerd friend who would maybe enjoy us. So send this podcast right on over to them. We tend to attract each other. (laughs) So... Until next time. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Bye, everyone.